everybody here will take to our seats and we'll open up with prayer today. We've got a lot of material to cover, at least um, begin to cover. So I'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day today. We thank you for our time to gather together and to sit under the means of grace to learn your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at the air of the new apostolic reformation movement, we pray that you would clarify the truth as to how you've spoken to us once and for all. We also pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand the truth that the kingdom of God does not come about by human effort, rather through the work of Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to be starting something anew. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this before we get back into the book of Proverbs is Bob has been making great headway in Acts. We didn't want to interrupt that. So I am not the expert that Bob is on the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, but good thing we have both Bob and Jessica here who are. So today we're going to be asking the question, who brings the kingdom? And we're going to start examining the claims of the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. Now let let me explain why this has become an important issue to me. Bob and Jessica have seen this advance, this movement advance through our culture And I was blown away by how many people are influenced by it. In fact, let me just cite a scene for you. I want to bring you back to a sunny day in August of 2022. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I very much appreciate as a congresswoman, at least politically, she stood on stage with a man named William Dutch Sheets from the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. And I want you to hear what Dutch Sheets said In fact, they all said this. It said, we, the church, are God's governing body on the earth. Point two, we have been given legal power and authority from heaven, and we are delegated by him to destroy every attempted advance of the enemy. And then it goes on, and this is from a reporter who was there. They go on to say, the audience then read aloud with Dutch sheets a list of 13 decrees, including that the three branches of the U.S. government will honor God, write only laws that are righteous. By the way, um, some of this I wish would happen. In other words, that the U.S. government would honor God. That's great, but are we going to bring this about through our effort? Or are we going to wait for the kingdom of God? That's the issue. It says, and only issue rulings that are biblical. The congregation continued in unison. We declare that we stand against wokeness, the occult, and every evil attempt against our nation. They concluded with Judge Sheets' trademark spiritual cry, We decree that America shall be saved. Notice the decree by Dutch Sheets is that America shall be saved. Who alone has the authority to make such a decree? Christ. God alone is the one who makes decrees in the Bible, not us. And so one of the great fallacies of the movement is these people within the movement, and I'll talk about this later, is they exercise faith differently than you and I do. You see, you and I believe that faith is directed towards the object of Jesus Christ. So for us, faith has an object. The object is Christ, his person, and his work. The New Apostolic Reformation Movement builds heavily off of the Word of Faith Movement, where there's a distortion or an equivocation. Does everyone know what equivocation means? It means you're taking a term, but you're using it differently than someone else does. So I use Will often. I said, hey, Will, it's cold outside or it's cool outside. Why don't you put on a jacket? But he says to me, Dad, I'm a cool cat. Well, he's using cool differently than I'm using it, right? He's using cool in the sense of hip. I'm using it in the sense of temperature. 
The same thing happens in faith. With the new apostolic reformation movement building off of the word of faith movement, faith becomes a force where they can speak things into existence by professing them. Their words are the carriers of the force and they are used to unleash new realities. And so in a lot of ways, they really are usurping the authority that God alone has. So today, I want to begin by showing that, yes, I have respect for Marjorie Taylor Greene, but I do not have any respect for the theology of the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. Ironically, the article writer of this article was a man from Rolling Stone magazine, and ironically, he had better theological sense the, a Rolling Stone magazine writer than did those who were signing on to the 13 decrees. Dear ones, we as Americans are never going to be helped by false theology. As citizens, I don't think that you and I need to become those who are making decrees that God alone can make in order to change our world. What you and I need to do is to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ And God is going to save those whom he's chosen. He is the one who has decreed what will happen in advance. Some of the decrees, by the way, we do know from the scriptures. God has revealed some of his decreative will here. We know, for example, that he has decreed that his son will reign over the entire earth. But we see it's also decreed that that happens not by us Christianizing the planet, but rather when things get so bad, there's no other way. The Lord Jesus intervenes in history and saves his people. That's what we see. Things are not going to get better. Things are going to get worse. So today, I want to show you on this kind of, this is a theological spectrum diagram. I want to talk about three different things. First of all, we're going to look at the major problems with the new apostolic reformation movement. Let me cite a source. This is from the International Society of Christian Apologetics. They said this. They said, the new apostolic reformation can be characterized as a post-millennial restoration movement which seeks to restore the so-called lost office of apostle and prophet with the goal of establishing the kingdom of God upon the earth. Dear ones, you and I believe in something called premillennialism, that Jesus Christ returns and then he sets up the kingdom. Postmillennialism of the new apostolic reformation movement says, no, you and I, through our efforts, make this world a better place by Christianizing it and having dominion over people and government, and then Christ returns merely to take the throne that you and I have already established. It's completely heretical. Okay? And let me move on to point two here. We're going to be refuting post-millennialism, and this is what we're going to cover today. Number three, we're going to be refuting dominion and Reconstruction theology. Let me try to put the problem on the board to kind of conceptually think about why is the New Apostolic Reformation movement a problem. Think about in the middle is biblical theology, biblical eschatology, the study of the last days. And biblical eschatology says that we are living right now in the church age. There are three terms for the age we're living in. You could refer to it as the church age. You can refer to it as the time of the Gentiles or you can refer to it as the last days. But what will happen is these days will last until a point that we don't know. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow morning. The end of it is imminent. It is at hand. But when it ends, we're going to have a rapture of the church. 
there's going to be a seven-year tribulation period called the 70th week of Daniel. That's also known as the parousia, the technical term for the coming of Christ. It is also the beginning of the day of the Lord. In that time, Christ will have saved his people, but he will show his wrath upon the earth. As his wrath is poured out at the end of that seven years, all of the nations will gather around Jerusalem. And as they do so, Jesus Christ will... Remember, he came at the beginning of the 70th week for his church. At the end, he will come with his church. But it's still part of the parousia. The parousia, the coming of Christ, is a complex event. We know that from Luke 17, 26, which likens the parousia to the days plural of the Son of Man. After Jesus returns with the church, he destroys the Antichrist with the splendor of his coming. He, therefore, will take reign over the earth for a thousand years. He'll set up his kingdom, and he does it by his power, not ours. That's what we're going to see today. Now, after that a thousand years, we're going to be reigning upon the earth with Christ. That's when the swords will be beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. The nations will no longer learn war. The nations will come up to worship the Lord. There will be a great peace that comes upon the whole world. In fact, in Zechariah 14, all the nations will go up to worship the Lord, and if they don't, the Lord will not send rain upon their land. It's going to be a time where Christ alone reigns upon the earth. And after that a thousand years, there's what we call the Battle of Gog and Magog, in which there's a final rebellion where Satan unleashes a final rebellion that is immediately crushed. It's the most lopsided battle in history. Christ merely calls fire down upon them, and they are done. His people, as soon as we are with him, we live securely. We don't have to ever fear. After that battle of Gog and Magog, at the end of the thousand years, we have the eternal states, a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem that follows the judgment seat, excuse me, the white throne judgment. The white throne judgment, remember in Revelation 20, is where all unbelievers will be sentenced to the lake of fire. But then you and I go into the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem to enjoy our God forever. That's biblical eschatology in a nutshell. What we have found in the 1990s and the 2000s is an emergent eschatology. Emergent eschatology is really a form of Christianized Marxism. The root of it comes from a man named Hegel. Hegel was the instructor of Karl Marx. In fact, Karl Marx and Engels were called the New Hegelians. Now, Hegel was a panentheist. Remember, pantheism is all is in God, or God is everything. Panentheism, the end, the date of preposition. Remember our preposition discussion, Laverne? That end preposition means that God is in everything. And so in Hegel's view, history is not where we have creation heading one day towards judgment, but rather because God is in everything, he's drawing all things into himself, so we're heading not for judgment, but a future utopia. For Hegel, the final expression of God drawing all things into himself was the state, the government. And that's precisely what Karl Marx glommed onto in his own doctrine. But Karl Marx was an atheist. And so what Karl Marx did is he materialized it. He took the panentheism. He said, no, no, we got to get rid of that. He materialized it. So he said that, yes, we're going to have this battle between the haves and the have-nots that goes through history. And one day we're going to go from capitalism, then we're going to go to socialism. And one day we're going to have the glorious utopia of communism all by human effort. And then we're going to have our grand utopia. So this emergent used, oops, let me pull up my pointer, 
used Hegel. Hegel, and that's why you say, well, why did America fall so fast for Marxism? Because Hegel has been the instructor of a lot of evangelicals. That's why. So in their politics, they've got Marx. In their religion, they've got Hegel. That's the emerging church. And they fit like two gloves. They fit really nice. So the emerging church is saying human beings will bring the kingdom. That's a movement of the left. And Bob and I and many other fine theologians stood rightly against that. But today, we have a movement that's on the right called the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, called Dominion Theology. Um, Dominion Theology is part of the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. And they are bringing us away from biblical theology to the right. What they say is through the church taking over the government and having dominion over all of human beings, not just dominion over the animals, the beasts of the air and the beasts of the field, but having dominion in our own governing authority over the entire planet, we are going to Christianize it so that Jesus Christ will come back to a pristine world and merely sit on a throne that we have created for him. That's ultimately the idea behind this post-millennialism. Let me give you some names in the Dominion movement. Um, Bob and Jessica, feel free to add more names to this. Some of them that I remember is Greg Bonson, uh, Kenneth Gentry. There was a guy named Gary North. Another one called Rush Dooney. I don't remember his first name. Maybe someone else knows. But these are some of the people that were in the Reconstruction movement. And the idea, and we'll talk about this, is that Christians don't just have dominion over the animals and the earth, but rather we have as the church dominion over other human beings. And so we as Christians are not to be simply engaged in proclaiming the gospel, but rather we are to take over institutions and rule and reign in lieu of Christ until he returns on the earth. And so what we see here in dominion theology is they are taking away again, us from biblical eschatology, but this time to the right. And so in both instances, we have to stand against it. Yes, Jessica, we'll get, oh, you got a microphone. And then we'll get Brian. So if you're on social media at all, the two who are really pushing this on the more conservative end of things today would be Doug Wilson and Jeff Durbin. And Doug Wilson, I think, kicks up a little more dust than Jeff Durbin does. But those are kind of the two to keep an eye on because they have a little different approach to it. It's a little more sneaky. Thank you. Um, Bob, oh, I'm sorry, Brian. We'll hit Brian, and then maybe you want to add any names you know. No, I just wanted to ask you, do you believe that the uh, religious right and the moral majority that helped catapult Reagan into office, do you think that was part of... Uh, this dominion uh, theology? You know, I think certainly there were elements to it. I, I always think that there are, there are true evangelicals who simply just don't want... I was talking to Jessica about this before you all came, and I said, I think we as voters, I'm just speaking as an American, I think we can speak out against the left, but we don't have to spiritualize everything. In other words, I don't want Marxism to come to the United States, not because I'm trying to build the kingdom of God, but because I want to be able to put gas in my car. Are you with me? So let me give you a simple analogy. Can we tell someone that, hey, smoking maybe isn't good for you from general revelation? Rather than saying, thus saith the Lord, I heard a word from the prophet or from the Lord, I'm a prophet and you can't smoke a cigarette. Why can't we just simply say, hey, I think smoking a heater every day is probably not going to be good for your lungs. 
we can use general revelation. If I'm flight instructing, I'm going to tell people how to fly based on what works, not based on thus saith the Lord. Are you with me? Okay, so that's what I think we should do as Christians. We should stand against Marxism, rightly so, but we don't do it by creating a false theology and a false eschatology. We simply show the error of Marx. Marxism is a religion. And sadly, um, if we go the route of the new apostolic reformation movement, many that we would vote for, they're going to try to establish their own religion. So yes, Paul. So you're saying that Christian liberty is uh, sometimes just making decisions because they're to be made, not because they're always scripturally oriented. Oriented. Yes, exactly. If uh, my truck has a flat tire on the way here, I'm just going to fix my flat tire. I'm not going to try to say I'm creating the kingdom of God. <laughs> I've got a problem. My tire's flat. Um, in the same way, I'm going to vote and stand against Marxism, but I'm not going to do so in order to build the kingdom of God. I know that I'm going to proclaim the gospel. The vast majority of people will not believe it. How do I know that? Because Jesus said it. So these people are standing against Jesus. They say, we Christianize the planet. Oh, really? Then you're standing against Jesus because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Many enter in through it, and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life, and few find it. These men have it on its head. The vast majority are one day going to find Christ and be Christianized and have a Christianized planet. I, I don't buy it. So, yeah. That's post-millennialism. Yeah, I think this goes straight to the fall. I mean, participation with God. Ever since the, the, the beginning, you know, Adam and Eve, when they fell, when she saw the fruit was good for wisdom, you know, she wanted to participate with God. So it's like our trying to participate with God. Hey, God, we'll get this done for you. And it's like, no, I got this on my own. Thank you. Right. Well said, Rich. I think the ultimate issue, one thing that we rebuked Emergent for was Emergent says the kingdom comes by human power and human effort not by God's grace. So in human effort, think of eschatology in the grandest scheme, the the 100,000-foot level, the satellite level, right, way up high. Does the kingdom come to Babylon by human works, or is it going to come to Jerusalem by the grace of God alone? That's the ultimate issue. And so biblical theology, biblical eschatology says the kingdom is coming to Jerusalem by the work of Christ alone. Now, we have a role in the sense that God has commanded us to proclaim the gospel. We have the Great Commission in Matthew 28. But in Matthew 28, our commission is not to rule and reign in government authority, but rather to proclaim Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And again, by the Spirit, some will believe, those who are chosen, and there will be others who don't. And that's, that's the name of the game. So you and I, yes, God uses us, to build a kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, not taking over some sort of office and human institutions. That's a huge change, I think, that the dominionists have. So does that make sense? So this is what I want to avoid. I don't want to go to the left eschatology, and I don't want to go this direction in eschatology either. So I think thanks to the New Apostolic Reformation movement and those like them, both the left and the right have an eschatological heresy that we need to be aware of. Now, I want to talk about the major eschatological views. I want to talk about premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, since we'll be talking about these things. Let's first of all begin with premillennialism. This is the view that Christ returns to establish a literal 
thousand-year reign upon the earth. When you read the scriptures, I think this is the natural reading, the least contrived. Why? Because in Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, those who had been beheaded for their faith will come to life and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Um, I had a professor years ago named Randy Nelson, and I was learning Greek at the time, and he said, you know what this means in the Greek? He was a hermeneutics professor at, at uh, Northwestern, and I was hanging on every word. I said, yes, what does it mean? He says, it means that they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. <laughs> it means what it says. And if we take it for what it says, that's premillennialism. Pre means Christ returns and sets up his a thousand-year kingdom. So look at the prefix next to millennial. Who does it? Christ does. It's by his power and his work. Now, that's being jettisoned, and it has been for many years by a lot of those in the Reformed tradition who hold to something called amillennialism. Notice the prefix ah means there is no millennial kingdom. We believe that Christ comes prior to the millennial kingdom to set it up. They don't believe in a millennial kingdom. There is no 1,000-year earthly reign of Christ. There is simply Christ's return and the eternal states. Now, this view has become popular in the Reformed tradition because they take the church and they say, we are now the new Israel. So they don't see any future promise for a restoration of Israel, despite Romans 11:26 clearly teaching it that one day all Israel will be saved. And remember, in that Romans eleven twenty six, nine times prior to that, the term Israel is used for national ethnic Israel. Remember, two verses after, Paul says that all Israel will be saved. In Romans eleven twenty eight, he says, they are, the, they are enemies of the gospel for your sake. That right there proves that that cannot be, as Calvin asserted, the term Israel cannot refer to every believer, Jew and Gentile. Why? Because how can a true believer, whether you're Jew or Gentile, be an enemy of the gospel? So who was an enemy of the gospel by and large when Paul wrote that? And still is today, Israel. National ethnic Israel. So that's exactly what Paul was saying. National ethnic Israel will be restored. Just as Zechariah 12.10 had promised, one day they'll look upon the one whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Yes, Brian. I was just thinking that if, if that's the case on millennialism, you might as well get rid of about 600 Old Testament verses and you might as well take two-thirds of the book of Revelation and throw it away. You're, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. If there's no millennial kingdom, let's, um, I'll just build a little bit of a case right here against amillennialism. If there is no thousand-year reign of Christ, which the Bible speaks of very clearly, then how do we understand things like, remember in... Ezekiel 47, you're going to have the Messiah reigning on the throne in Jerusalem, and there's going to be waters that proceed from his throne that they say they literally give life to the Dead Sea. So the Dead Sea will, in fact, have fish in it again. Well, it's very interesting in the eternal states. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 21? One of the things that John points out is that there was no more sea. Okay, so think about it. In the eternal states, when you have the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, this is after the millennial kingdom in our eschatology, there's no more sea. Now, why would that be important for John the Jew? Well, number one, because the Antichrist comes out of the sea. The sea represents the abyss. As Bob has pointed out numerous times, the Jews did not like the sea. But also think, where was John? He was on Patmos, separated by all those whom he loved by the sea. 
So he rejoiced in a day where the sea would no longer be there. Now, I like the sea. I like the water. John, not so much. But he makes the point, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there will be no more sea. So right now during the church age, the Dead Sea doesn't have life in it. In the eternal states, there's going to be no more sea. So where do you fit in this idea that the Dead Sea will bring forth life and fish again if there's no millennial kingdom? It's not happening now, and it's not going to happen in the eternal states. Where is this going to happen? Um, yeah, global warming. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So there's a lot of problems with amillennialism, and they just simply don't take the Bible for what it says. When they say the thousand years um, in Revelation 20, verse 4, what they do with that is they say that's a figure of speech that refers to the age that we're living in as an indefinite time period. The problem with that in the book of Revelation is anytime John gives you a symbol, he tells you what the symbol is. That's one of the tactics. See, let me just give you a little clue on how to interpret Revelation. It's actually very simple. What happened in the 20th century, even prior to that, is many theologians tried to claim that the book of Revelation is merely apocalyptic literature. Let me explain what apocalyptic literature is. Apocalyptic literature came from the intertestamental period, the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New. You had people, anybody ever hear of, of the Essenes? They lived in the Qumran area. Well, they would write their own works, and in it, they would be, it was high, very, um, this is very apocalyptic literature. They'd have a lot of symbols in it in which you could read anything you wanted into the symbol. And it was, in some sense, designed that way. Now, I'm sure they had their own interpretation of it. So what happens in the book of Revelation, because it is the unveiling or the revelation of Jesus Christ, which uses the term apocalypse in it, Many scholars have concluded that Revelation is apocalyptic literature and you can read into the symbols anything you want. The problem with that is John himself says it is a prophecy. Now, how do we know that it's a prophecy? Because John, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, says in, in Revelation chapter 1 that it's a prophecy. So in prophecy, what John does is anytime he gives you a symbol, he tells you what it is. For example, he says the dragon is Satan. The lampstands are the churches. He tells you what it is. And if he doesn't explicitly tell you what the symbol is, he, he alludes directly to an Old Testament passage where you know exactly what the symbol is. In fact, there are 404 direct allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So either he tells you what the symbol is or he brings you to an Old Testament reference which tells you the symbol. So you and I don't have to guess. So the point is, where is this idea that a thousand years should be taken figuratively rather than literally? There's no reason we should do that. Was it R.C. Sproul? Did he believe that? He was, he was an amillennialist, yes. He would have been. Um, he was also... He did not. He was also a partial preterist. Um, so preterism is the idea that all of the events that are spoken of in Matthew 24, for example, occurred in 70 A.D. alone. And that the only thing that's left is for Jesus Christ to return. So much of the book of Revelation, in fact, he would say Revelation all the way up to chapter 19 is about events in 70 A.D. Now, a, a full preterist would say that there's no... There's no future coming of Christ. So that's heresy. Yes, Laverne, and I'll go on to the next one here in a second, post-millennialism. And that's what the NAR holds to. 
Yes, Laverne. Yeah, you mentioned Matthew 24. Well, maybe that could be explained better if people understood that he's talking to three different groups. Jesus is prophesying first to the nations, then to the Jews, then to the church. And so when you put each of what he's saying into context, it makes perfect sense. Sure. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll be actually talking a lot about the interpretation of the Olivet Discourse when we come to Matthew chapter 24. The, the whole issue in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 is it's built on a chiastic structure. Chiasm is where you have, I'll have to show it on the board sometime, but there's grammatical discourse markers that show us what Jesus is doing with it. So there's two questions that he's answering of the disciples. The first question is, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They assumed the end of the age was when he came. Now, the reason they're focused purely on the last days rather than on 70 AD is Jesus was on the Mount of Olives where they knew Zechariah 14. They knew that one day the Messiah returns to the Mount of Olives and destroys their enemies. So that's the setting. And so Jesus is focusing purely on the future, not in 70 AD, but the future day of the Lord. So what he does, he begins by answering the second question, what are the signs? From from Matthew 24, verse 5, all the way to verse 35, he gives you all the signs within the 70th week of Daniel. The reason we know it's the 70th week of Daniel is because Jesus tells us it is. In Matthew 24, 15, he says, So, there's an inference, he says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, remember, that's what happens at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he says, Then those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains meaning all the signs that he gives you are within the 70th week. Well, then he gets to Matthew 24, 36, and he uses peri day, which means now concerning. Now he's switching topics. It's related, but now he's answering the first question. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, he answered the second question, what are your signs? Now he's answering the first question, when will these things be? When will the 70th week come? And he says eight different ways you can't know. No one knows. So the point is you and I are living in the 69 weeks after the 69th week of Daniel, and we are waiting for the 70th week. How long does that time period go? We have no idea. We have no idea. But our job is simply to be faithful and give the gospel, knowing it's the narrow path to salvation. And few will find it, but some will by the power of the Spirit. And the R says, no, we're going to throw all that out, and we're going to build the kingdom by taking over institutions and Christianizing the planet and therefore, Christ will simply come back and reign. That's post-millennialism. That's the new apostolic reformation movement. So post-millennial, that view says believers are currently living in a millennial kingdom. You probably didn't know that you're living in a millennial kingdom now. So you might be asking yourselves, well, what about the swords be beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks? Well, that will come later in the eternal states, they claim. Well, that's kind of, <laughs> think about it. In the eternal states, there are no sinners left. They're all thrown into the lake of fire. All you have are believers. So beating the swords into plowshares and the spears into printing hooks really is kind of a, it's not much of a point to be made if you only have believers in the kingdom. So anyway, that's what they believe. But they believe it's an indefinite length of time. Again, they spiritualize a thousand years. And after this, we Christianize the planet, Christ returns. So we're going to somehow Christianize the planet and take over, and then Christ will in fact return. That is their view. Okay, so I want you to see that this is related to a movement. Bob talked about this with me on the phone. I want to have you turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, verses 23 through 27. 
And I want to show you the link between this movement of the New Apostolic Reformation and something called the Latter Rain Movement. The Latter Rain comes from Joel 2.23, and it builds off of this idea that in the time of Israel, God would send his rain, his early rains, and his latter rains. Well, that text is spiritualized to mean that one day God will pour out his spirit again, like he did at Pentecost, sometime in the last days, and therefore that spirit will Christianize the planet. It will reestablish the authority of the apostles and prophets. But I'm going to show you that is not a good reading. So this is the latter rain movement and how it ties in to the new apostolic reformation movement. So how do we refute it? Well, let's look at Joel 2.23. Let's start there. Notice in verse 23, this is where they get it. They say, So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given you early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. So does everyone see that? That's where they get the term latter rain from, and they believe that that is a reference to the sending of the Spirit in the last days. Now, let me read to you what the latter rains were actually about from Dwayne Garrett. He said this, he said, The sending of the rain reverses the drought implied back in Joel 1.17, and it enables the land to recover from the locust swarms. The autumn rains, that would be the latter rains, promoted germination of the seed, and the spring rains came prior to harvest and enabled the grain to swell and ripen fully. So what simply is being stated here by the prophet Joel is that the destruction upon the land because of their sin, that would one day be reversed. Now why is that important? Because God had promised, turn your Bibles to, let's see, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 12. Could somebody read that for me? Deuteronomy 28.12. I want to show you that part of the curse of the land, that if they sinned and rebelled against Yahweh, would be that he would not send rain upon their land. But if they would serve him, he would send rain upon the land. So someone could read Deuteronomy 28.12. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to the to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Very good. So notice in Deuteronomy 20, 12, that's the promise. So remember back in that time period in Deuteronomy, you had this, the blessings were from Mount Gerizim and the curses were from Mount Ebal. One of the curses is that God wouldn't send his rain upon their land. Well, that's what the Israelites received in the ninth century. I believe that the book of Joel should be dated to around 840 BC. And I've talked about that in our studies. So I believe that at that time, they were getting into Baal worship. And so Baal, remember, he was the one who promised a good crop. So God says, oh, you want to rely upon Baal? Well, why don't you see how that goes for you? And he took the rain from them. Okay, so the promise here that he would give the rain is saying, hey, I'll be faithful if you repent. And he's talking about one day that they will, and he'll bring their rain back to them. Now, I want you to see how this is related to Joel 2:20 through 32. This is about the sending of the Spirit. Everyone turn your Bibles to Joel 2:28. I'm going to show you that these two are not the same. They're not synonymous. The sending of the rain is a foreshadowing that one day he'll send the Spirit, but it is not the same thing. And I'll show you the timing indicator. Joel 2, 28 through 32. Look at verse 28. Notice in Joel 2, 28, it says, It will come about after, in, in, literally in Hebrew, ahar, after this, 
that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. So notice there's a different timing indicator. It's not at that time when he sends the latter rain that he's pouring out his spirit. It's after that time. So he's referring here now to the last days. And the last days begin when? At Pentecost and the sending of the spirit. The, the, the finished work of Christ. As he has ascended, he sends the spirit. And notice what it says. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Stop there. That's the fulfillment of Moses' desire in Numbers chapter 11. Oh, that God's Spirit would be poured on all of God's people. Not just Moses, not just the 70, not just the prophets, but on all of God's people. All of them. No, no matter if you're male or female, no matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Uh, think of Galatians 3.28. There's no slave nor free. There's no Jew nor Gentile, nor male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Right? So he's going to send it upon all people. But notice now, verse 30, you get to the end of the last days. I will displace wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Notice verse 31, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into the blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's what Jesus cites from at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. So he's taken you from the beginning of the last days all the way to the end of the last days. That's what he's talking about in Joel 2, 20 through 32. So the pouring out of the Spirit is the beginning of the last days. That's exactly what Peter cites at Pentecost. And yet, the new apostolic reformation movement says this is going to happen at the end of the last days. Is that a good reading of Joel 2, 28 through 32? Or Joel 2, 23? It is a bad reading. It is deliberately distorting the point where Joel says it will come about after, a hare. The term is there in Hebrew, a hare. It's not just a rabbit. It's a Hebrew term, a hair. Yes, Brian. It seems like when uh, you look at Joel 2.23 with that agrarian culture yes. and the, the early rain and then the latter rain, it's almost as if these Dominion people have changed it from R-A-I-N to R-E-I-G-N, where they're yes. taking control. I, I think you're... Deli- I'm sorry, Jessica, you want to comment on that? I think there's... You're probably exactly right. Yeah. Go ahead, Jessica. Yeah, that actually... That is pretty interesting. But I think we also need to make a a careful distinction here with postmillennialism. Yes. Because we do have the NAR side of it where the church is responsible for taking control of things and enforcing God's law and and establishing the kingdom yes. of Christ there is that end of postmillennialism but then you have on the other side the so the Doug Wilson version would be we need to have kids lots of kids and we need to baptize them and we need to catechize them and we need to send them to Christian schools and and we're going to christianize the world through natural generation Yes. not through taking over. I mean, he actually takes the other, get, get out of politics, get out yes. of, I mean, he doesn't say don't vote, but he's not pushing Christians to be taking over government institutions. He's pushing Christians to point the government back to their proper lane. Yes. But the approach that is really gaining ground within reform circles right now is that version of post-millennialism that really springs from confusing the church in Israel and the promises given to Israel that are not given to the church. Amen. Amen. Well well said. Thank you for that distinction. Very, very helpful. So that would be 
Wilson's version, and what was the other name you'd cited too? He said he wasn't as known. Jeff Durbin. Is that Durbin's view as well? Yes. Okay, so Durbin and uh, Wilson's view would be that. Yes. Okay, very good. Does everyone hear that? Um, I'm sorry, Nancy, we, she's got something back there. So the New Apostolic Reformation Movement would be different in their understanding of postmillennialism. They do think that we should be taking over institutions, whereas some of these, like Wilson and this Durbin, they say, no, we're going to do it through having big families, having Christians, and Christianize the planet that way. Yeah, very good. We're just studying Zechariah 8 this past week where yes. Jen, Jen facilitated, and it, it's just so abundantly clear that there is no church replacing Israel because the whole chapter talks about how the Jews are going to be blessed in so many ways in these days and how people will want to grab onto the coattails of them and go to the house of the Lord with them. There's no way the church is going to be there for that. I mean, is going to be taking over for Israel. Yeah, amen. Well said. That's, that's well said. Yeah, the, the idea that somehow the church has replaced Israel is a major heresy. And as Jessica was pointing out with this idea of taking children and baptizing them as infants, the reason why the Reformed theologians believe that that's valid is because circumcision was done on eight-day-old babies under the Old Covenant. Now, what they claim is that in Colossians 2, there's a link between circumcision and baptism. The problem with their view is that the circumcision that's referred to in Colossians chapter 2 is a circumcision without hands. And so it's a reference to the circumcision of the heart, bring people to faith in Christ. And so what's interesting is those who should be baptized have a circumcision of the heart, even though they don't need circumcision of the flesh. That's precisely Paul's point in Romans 2.29. Remember, the Jew isn't the one who was outwardly the Jew, who has circumcision outwardly, but remember our term kruptos? It's the one who is a secret Jew inwardly, and his praise comes not from man, but from God, right? So that's the idea. And so what you and I say is, no, there's not a one-to-one relationship between the old covenant theocratic kingdom where, let's say you're an unbeliever, you still had to abide by the commands because you were part of a physical people in a theocratic kingdom. The new covenant community is different because the only way that you can enter to the new covenant community is by being born again. If you were born physically an Israelite, during the Mosaic legislation, you were part of that theocratic kingdom. You had to abide. But the only way you can become a partaker of the new covenant is by being born again. It's the only way. There's a huge distinction between the old and the new covenant in that way. Yeah, very good. Anybody else on anything? Well, thank you for the helpful distinctions, and thanks for pointing that out, Nancy. Very good. Yes, Zechariah chapter 8. And by the way, much of Zechariah is about exactly the promises that will come to Israel and to Jerusalem. That's what Zechariah 12 all the way through 10, or excuse me, all the way through chapter 14 focus on. Absolutely. Okay, so let's keep moving on. What I want to do is talk about the six problems with the new apostolic reformation movement. Now, as I'm citing this to you, I'm taking this from a society called the International Society of Christian Apologetics. There are evangelical scholars from around the world that actually do a good job with theology And I think that their categories are helpful here. So let's put these six on the board. These are the six things that are distinctive about the New Apostolic Reformation movement. First of all, they're post-millennial. The idea is that we as humans bring the kingdom. Now remember, there's three ways that 
they believe we're going to bring about the kingdom that are different from our theology. Number one, they have modern-day apostles and prophets. And so there's, there's kind of a different view within NAR. Some believe that the, the apostles and prophets were never lost. Others would say, well, no, they were lost for a time, but they're going to be reestablished. Either way, what they all agree on is that the apostles and prophets' authority will be recognized and will be reestablished, and therefore we're going to have miracles and conversion like we've never seen before due to the reestablished apostles and prophets. The second is dominionism. Again, because the church is to take over the role of the state, we are going to therefore take over the planet in that way. And again, I think, Jessica, that's helpful. Not all in the post-millennial side even would hold to that, like Wilson and Durbin. Yeah, all right. more of a spread of Christendom. Yes, very good. The third thing is the latter rain, as I mentioned, that they believe there's going to be a pouring out of the Spirit in these last days, which is going to lead to a mass conversion, a revival. Let me talk a little bit about revival. The term revival implies that something is dead. Let's talk about what the Bible teaches. What does the Bible teach that is dead in sin before conversion? Well, every human being. Every single human being. We're all dead in our transgressions. So revival really means conversion. Are you with me? And if you are converted you will never apostatize. There are warnings about apostasy, but Jesus, doesn't he promise that if you are converted, you become one of his sheep, that you will never perish? Remember in John 10, 27 through 28, he says, no one can snatch them out of my, my hand. My Father is given to me, and my Father is greater than all. Right? So no one can snatch them away from the Lord's hand. We're secure. So what does revival really mean? Revival means conversion. So... The idea that we're going to have a mass revival is contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches in Matthew chapter 7 globally that wide is the path that leads to destruction and many enter in through it. This is Matthew 7, 13 through 14. And narrow is the path that leads to eternal life and few find it. So whereas you might have in any area, many people might come to faith, Still, when you look at it globally, it's always going to be the minority report. It's always going to be a small group that finds salvation. And so I think it's very, uh, very sneaky to say that we're going to have a grand revival when, in fact, the Bible says otherwise. Now, Christians who don't get on board with this are considered as weak and carnal. And so the irony is if you don't hold to post-millennialism, if you actually hold to true biblical eschatology you're going to be considered weak and carnal and defeated. You don't believe in a second blessing. You don't believe in a pouring out of the Spirit on the last days. You don't believe in modern-day apostles and prophets. And so that's the allure. I think some are browbeaten into this movement. After all, who wants to be defeated? Is it popular to be strong or defeated? Well, strong. And so that's part of the draw of the new apostolic reformation movement. It's a rah, 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 we're going to go kick some can kind of attitude. But all, in other words, think of it this way. All of us want to be Elijah who called down fire upon the false prophets, but nobody wants to be the Jeremiah who's thrown into the cistern and not listened to. But was Jeremiah any less faithful? No. He was faithful in his day. So post-millennialism does that. It says, hey, you either get on board and want to Christianize the planet or you're really not spiritual. 
Number two, Reconstructionism. Christians are to directly engage against forces of darkness to restore the dominion that was lost. Christians can start making decrees like Dutch Sheets does. Well, I shouldn't say we all can do that. It's their apostles and prophets who do so. But the idea is that we are to change things by exercising our faith. And again, the words are the container of faith rather than you and I who say, no, faith is directed towards the object of Jesus Christ. They turn faith into like a force that's used. Um, Much like, think of uh, Ken Copeland who said that he could speak storms out of existence while he was flying. I would have loved to have that skill set, by the way, when I was flying, to just speak things into existence. Yes, Christy. Well, I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but before the end of class, I'm just curious if anybody can comment, any of you, about the impact or the influence of the music that goes with a lot of this stuff. Mm. Is Bethel, Bethel and Hillsong and those organizations part and parcel to this. Very good. Yeah, Jessica, could you comment on that? So the music, especially today, is really driving the NAR, and it's funding the NAR. This is a, this is a big business, and it, what, part of what is so very deceptive is equivocation. They're writing songs and saying words that we interpret one way, but that's not what they mean by it. And especially for the youth, the youth get very drawn in by the music. And uh, Bethel's probably the more extreme, but they're literally a cult. And these young people are being drawn in by the music. And they end up out there at Bethel, and they lose contact with their families. And it's a really terrible situation, but the music is a big hook. And so that's something we need to really be careful of. Jessica, what are the, I'm sorry to interrupt, what are some of the, do you have any titles that come to mind, some of the songs that you think of, um, or maybe deliberately don't know them, but are there any titles? So the the Hillsong ones are probably more well known here, Um, Cornerstone. Shout to the Lord is a, is one that is really, really well known in, in Christian circles, and they don't mean what we think they mean. Okay. Um, Bethel recently did a version of It Is Well that everybody really loves that is not what we think they mean. Okay. Um, the blessing that comes out of Elevation, Steve Furtick's church, which is out of the Numbers 6 passage, but it's what they add to it that is the yeah. problem. And so it's these subtle distortions that that are really very deceptive. Yeah. One, one that comes to my mind was These Are the Days of Elijah. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I like the tune. I like, it's got a good tune to it, so I, li- I want to like it. And you want to give... But let me explain why that's not... Should I give some of the claims so people know what this is about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. I wrote an article about the roots and fruits of the New Apostolic Reformation in 2007, so that's 15 years ago, when I was back on the front burner. There is a a movement that claims the church has to be perfected on the earth before Christ can return. Yes. Whatever the relationship to civil government, the claim is there has to be this a uh, new breed of man, Elijah generation, many member man-child. There's many names for it. 
And this will be a powerful, holy, perfected church that has never been seen before and must come forth before Christ can return. That's the key claim. Now, the groups that we mentioned are, are part of that, but they have different versions of it. I was interviewed for two hours by a filmmaker and uh, try to remember these things. But let me give you a few highlights so we know where this comes from. The first version of it came from a British lady in 1679 by the name of Jane Lead. And I'll just quote the part about where this is going. Jane Lead, 1679. <clears throat> Until there be such a church made ready upon the earth, so holy, so Catholic, and so anointed, that it is without all spot or wrinkle, and that it is adorned as a bride to meet her bridegroom, Christ will not personally descend to solemnize this marriage and present the same to his father. Now, that was 1679. Jane Lee's writings have been copiously, perfectly restored in the original Old English, and you can find them online. And I noticed that the link I had in my article still works. Okay, so uh, it's very much like the source of the this latter rain idea. So the church, the bride of Christ, has to be perfected as the bride before Christ can return. So as long as we got problems, Christ can't return. Okay, and then let me give a couple more. The latter rain idea, George Warnock, around 1951, says this. Warnock, Christ is going to remain right where he is at God's right hand until there arise a group of overcomers who shall conquer over all God's enemies, and yet the majority of Christians are looking for a rapture at any moment when Christ is supposed to catch away a miserable, defeated, disease-ridden church. So we're miserable, defeated, and disease-ridden. We're not good enough. Christ isn't come for us. He won't because we're too messed up. Laterine. Then there's the Melchizedek priesthood. This supposed to arise. Now, who is the Melchizedek priest? Christ. Okay. Um, in the fullness of this new priesthood, we shall be completely glorified, like under Christ, but even as Christ began his priesthood on earth by interceding for his brethren, so let us begin even now to possess this glorious heritage in the spirit, the kingdom of God within. So the kingdom of God has to come in the church, through the church, the perfected bride, the Elijah company, the many-membered man-child, the new breed of man, and so on and so forth. And there, until then, Christ can't return. And there's one thing after another. William Branham, supposedly the prophet of the Laodicean church, Latter Rain here. They have a website, latterrain.com, with a hyphen. We are the man-child. We are the fulfillment of the prophecy that has just been birthed. Who are we? The true prophets of the last days. And so in Kansas City, they have the claim, and I cite this because of, of interviewing people who were involved in it and got out, that until the bridal paradigm 
they have this 24-hour prayer going on, and they're, be, they're going to have a perfected bridal paradigm, wow. and Christ cannot return until that bride is ready. And I literally have talked to people who got out of the movement who said they were willing to go to Kansas City to get into it. All right? Kansas City province. Now, um, the Elijah Company, have you heard that one? Yes. Yeah, and so instead of Elijah must come, they're saying the Elijah Company is going to be all of these prophets and apostles that are going to come. Hmm. And so that's what we've documented. Now, here's what I would suggest, that we get a sober-minded view of who the church is. Amen. And that we, in the article I concluded, ironically, in this whole view, the hope of the church becomes the church itself. And some of them said, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Mm. Okay, so, (laughs) uh, dear ones, I have seen the, the, the fallout in people's lives of those who got involved with this, who believed it. The filmmaker uh, that interviewed me grew up in that movement, and he saw what happened, and that's why he's making documentaries. This isn't the case. And it's as if they're taking the Corinthian air, re-resurrecting it, and bringing it all back out there. Because if you stand back and get a clear view and that'll be our sermon today, but they viewed Paul as a failure as an apostle, the Corinthians. Hmm. If you go by the standards of the new breed of man, Elijah Company, so on, Joshua generation, that's another one. You look at the apostles, they didn't take dominion over civil government. They didn't do greater miracles than Jesus did. They didn't do the things the folks claim they're going to do. And that's exactly how Corinth was judging Paul. He's a, he's a pathetic failure. Yeah. So this is a poison pill for the gospel. Oh. Just this last week, or two, I, someone talked to me who had gotten out of the movement and went, by the way, if you're ever in that and get out, you lose every friend you had. They won't even talk to you. And that's what this couple said that I interviewed, they left Kansas City group. Yes. They, they said that most of the people they knew that had been in there, and this guy had been like one of their top people and then got out, a lot of them when they leave, they, they aren't even Christian. They give up on even serving God because when they don't become the perfect bridegroom revelation, all the, the same problems show up, then they think they fail and it's hopeless. Wow. And dear ones, it's not the truth. The, the Christians have been the same sort of persons since the day of Pentecost. Sinners saved by grace. Amen. And there's no new breed of man. That's another phrase. There is no such thing. And my heart breaks to see this coming back again. Yes. It, it blew up in the 80s when they had this held in the heavens until in Georgia through Earl Polk and then getting hooked up with the reformed version of it. They were going to have us all. Jesus can't come back until we get our act together. All right. 
and that's the the bottom line. So sorry to interrupt, but no, very good. I Thank think you, Bob. That's what we wanted. Where this is going, it'll help. Absolutely. And I realized I missed the most important part of the answer to Christie's question. And everything he was just saying, in their theology of worship, that's how we access that. In our theology of worship, we are praising God for what he has done and all that we have in him. And we define all that we have in him properly. It's not health and wealth and prosperity, and it's not power over demons. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about what we have in him. They are talking about that. But in their theology of worship... Music is used to summon the Holy Spirit and to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and to get you speaking in tongues and to open you up to to access things of God that normal Christians standing here singing hymns don't have. They have a very different uh, definition of what worship is, and so their music is intentionally very emotionally stirring because it's meant to open you up to the spirit world. Yes. Is that the that's what IHOP, International House of Prayer. In, in the 80s, this is not new. In the 80s, I, people I knew that in the group I was in, which was in some ways similar, and they got out of in 1980, they announced that they had a new breed of man. That was wow. in the 80s. Well, what's a new breed of man? Well, it's going to be these people that overcome sin yeah. before Christ returns. It's, it's as if the resurrection already happened. It's very similar to the Corinthian era. And when a former a guy that I knew that I used to be part of the ministry with told me, yeah, they, they, they have this new breed of man. And I look at him, like, what? Wow. What? Is, is there anything other than the Adamic race? Yes. Amen. That's it. But that's, those, these claims, we're not making it up. And whenever that documentary I don't know if anything I said will be included in it, but... What an attack on the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right. Yes. Think about it. Let's think about it this way. Let's close in prayer here in a minute. What did the thief on the cross need to be added to him in order to enter into paradise that day? What he had was the imputed righteousness of Christ. I was just turning to Romans chapter 4. How do we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, which forever guarantees that we are right to be with God and that we will be with him forever? It comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, all because of what Christ did alone. When he said, it is finished on the cross, he didn't say, it is finished except for, he said, it is finished. And if you have the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith alone, no matter when you die, no matter how you faltered, your sins, past, present, and future have been washed away. And you will enter in the kingdom if Christ should return tonight. If you have trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be a partaker of his glorious kingdom. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Jessica. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the truth. We thank you, Lord, that we can look into these things and help equip people to see that the new apostolic reformation movement and those associated with them are distorting your word, distorting your promises, and distorting what Christ alone can do. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'd help equip us to defend the truth, to help those who may be in this movement, maybe family, friends, coworkers. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word through us to help bring them out of that movement. Lord, I also pray for Bob today in the message in 1 Corinthians. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand the things of the scriptures, that we would live different lives as a result. We'd be not just hearers of the word, but doers. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.